Welcome to Rumiki Talks podcast. I'm your host, Konstantin Starodetsky. This is a space where I interview professionals from the entertainment industry and discuss popular film-related topics with my co-host and producing partner, Romana Dinevska. Our goal is to help and motivate aspiring filmmakers to get their films made. Enjoy. Today's guest is John Henry Richardson. He has appeared in over 400 films, TV shows, plays and commercials. He co-stars as a series regular in Mom, Don't Do That on Netflix and a grunt's life for Vet TV. John appeared on The Jimmy Kimmel Show along with Julia Roberts and George Clooney. The best part, John has a lot more to come. Please welcome John Henry Richardson. Welcome, John. Thank you for inviting me, Constantine. Good to be here. Of course. So let's just dive in. Yeah. What was your call to adventure? What was your inciting incident to enter this entertainment industry world? Well, it's, you know, always been in my blood. It's always been. My, my mother worked right across the street here at Warner Brothers Studios. She was in the bookkeeping department and she did all the payroll for all the movie stars. So at night she'd come home and she'd have to fill out all the checks. And I got to see as a little boy how much movie stars made at Warner Brothers. It was pretty Pretty oh, wow. big money when you're looking at it, a kid, and you're getting a five-cent allowance. <laughs> and my father was a cameraman a photographer, right? And so he had a studio, and mm-hmm. he did a lot of the glamour photography and publicity photography for all the studios. And he taught me at the age of 10 and 11 years old how to light, how to lens, the difference between one lens and the other, uh, how to do processing, developing, printing, so exposure, continuity, uh, uh, composition, all these things were taught to me at a very early age. So it just sort of rolled naturally. You know, we grew up here in Burbank, California, though I'm originally from Virginia. Uh, we grew up here, in, my brother and I, we grew up here in Burbank, California. And a lot of the kids here in Burbank, they had parents working at the studios too. So, you know, now you go to school with eight and nine-year-olds who have their Screen Actors Guild cards. And to them, it's a normal thing, you know. Because the parents that work at the studios bring the kids in because if the kids can get in the union, they don't necessarily want them to have a career, but they can certainly get their college money that way. And so many mm-hmm. of my, my, my buddies that I went to school with were in the union. Some were serious actors. Some were just doing it for fun. But it really was more of a mom and pop neighborhood back then. You know, it's changed big time since then. Wow. <laughs> How old were you when uh, uh, you got the union card? I got my union card at 18, 18 at 18. That's the, the earliest you can get it, right? Well, uh, no, you can get it as a child too. But, you know, I, mm. I wasn't working full time as a child. But for instance, I, I would work with, you know, kid actors like Ron Howard, right? <laughs> when he was Ronnie mm. Howard, right? Before he was a director. <laughs> and he was uh, doing uh, the Andy Griffith show and he was Opie on Mayberry. Um, so a lot of those kids that I, I went to school with, I would, at the end of the day, 3 o'clock, I'd leave school. I'd walk down to Warner Brothers. They'd let me in. They'd say, hey, guys, it's Fernie's son. My mother, Fern. Fernie's son's here. Come on in, Johnny. And I got a chance to go from soundstage to soundstage and see the back lots and play and all that stuff. It was like the world's biggest pay- playground, you know? Wow, yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> so it was in my, it was kind of, kind of performing was ingrained in me, as well as filmmaking and being on both sides of the camera. But it was a great early lesson. There's no place to learn that stuff in those days. Is there a moment uh, that you remember uh, on set, like the first time that you were on, on like a professional set? Uh, what, what was it maybe? And also like who was there? What was the environment? Maybe some interesting moment that you remember at this moment? Well, there were so many of those moments. Uh, I remember uh, watching uh, The Fugitive, <laughs> a good friend of ours, a schoolmate of mine, Suzanne Kent, took us to... Uh, the studio to see them filming The Fugitive, right? The original Fugitive, uh, and uh, with uh, with Richard Jansen, right? Just a really good actor. And we got a chance to watch them, and he came back backstage afterwards, and he gave us some information. But I'd say the moving, the truly the most moving experience would be meeting Marlon Brando time oh, at, wow. at Stella Adler Studio here. Yeah, yeah, pretty amazing. And he was, do I have a moment to talk about that at all? Sure, go ahead. Okay, all right. So we were students, we're sitting here, and there is, it's kind of like a gymnasium. Um, And he's sitting in this little ring area, so no one can get to him. He's got a, like a gray sweatshirt and, you know, khakis and 
uh, loafers with no sandals and or with no 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 socks and kind of stubble. And he had this little table, and on this table were cigarettes, cigars, pipes, lighters, matches, smoking tobacco, and all these things. And he was just sitting there lighting cigarettes and smoking them and doing all these really interesting things. And finally, when he finished, we were allowed to come and ask a question. So I asked him, uh, Mr. Brando, are you preparing for a role? Is that what you were doing? And he said, no, I I'm, I'm quitting smoking. But I know that I'm going to play a character that will have to smoke. So I'm just sort of trying all these different ways in which to uh, affect using cigarettes. And so he talked about, for instance, uh, if, you're a, uh, if you're a truck driver, say, you might have your cigarette. He says, you might hold your cigarette way up here because you've got to be able to drive while you're smoking. And he showed us that. And I said, that was great. You know? And he says, or what if I'm rolling my own cigarettes, right? And I'm in a Western movie and I'm wearing my six gun. Well, I got to be able to roll the cigarette, but never take my eyes off that other guy because I don't want him to draw his gun, right? He says, or maybe I even have to roll it with one hand. And he did. He literally rolled the cigarette with one hand while looking at us and never breaking eye contact as he licked it, tightened it, put it in his mouth, took out a stick match, put it around the back of his pants, lit it, and that was it. I mean, he just really was a perfectionist. So I learned a lot about, oh, that's what acting is. That's what acting is. Creating moments, creating real live actions. And more than anything, the great lesson was that we learned that a prop or an action is an extension of a character to reveal something about the character that the character wouldn't ordinarily tell you about himself. Nobody wants to hear a guy doing a monologue talking about me, 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 and me in my life. Right? That's why they, yeah. that's why they invented the sidekick. You know, Ward Bond or Gabby <laughs> Hayes was there. Well, you know what happened to the Duke? He was always, and then he'll tell you a long story and win an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. And meanwhile, the iconic star, the John Wayne, the Clint Eastwood, you know, they would remain intact as a mystique. Right? So all these things, learning that early on, gave me a compass going into it. And it made creating roles just a, a ball, just a, a great time. What was, what was the first time that you applied th those l magical lessons that you learned from Marlon Brando uh, in your own uh, <laughs> career? <laughs> well, by the time I started doing, you know, when you first get out of high school, you're going to college. Uh, and so you're mm -hmm. not putting full-time energy into a career. So you wind up doing theater, which is, I recommend everybody to do theater. Because there you're working in mm -hmm. continuity, you know. Uh, you know, there's no action, and we're doing scene 17. You know, you look at a, a screenplay, and let's say you got 52 scenes you're in. It's like a deck of cards, 52 scenes. And you know you're going to start here, and you're going to create an emotional arc for your character that's going to build and eventually pay off there. So you know how you want to create the character. But... The filmmakers take all those scenes, they shuffle them up, and boom, you may do your death scene the first day on set. So you can't work in continuity. And so you have to remember every time you're doing a scene, and you know all this, right, Christian? Yeah. No. When you are on a, on a movie set and you have to do a scene, you have to remember what happened before and what's going to happen after so that that will fit almost like a linchpin and it becomes a seamless performance, right? So... Theater allows you to get back to building that arc and living that arc every night. We're doing it every night. So you can get used to that, that process of all the involvement of a character. And then when you go and do it in a film and it's out of sequence, you can still get there. So one complements the other. Uh, film, yeah. if you're a theater actor, film is a great experience for acting because it's internal. There are no close-ups on stage. There are no retakes <laughs> on stage. If you blow a line, you blew a line. And you got to live with it. In film, go back to one, back to one, back to one until you get it right. You know, so it's a different discipline, and I, I recommend it. I recommend it highly. Yeah, there is there is definitely something beautiful in it when you don't have to do any takes. Uh, you just start and then go however it goes, and and, and you finish yeah. it. Well, yeah. Wouldn't it be interesting yeah. if it was in film like this? Like you start rolling camera, 
and you plan yeah. it in a way so you don't have to reset anything you just shoot it in one <laughs> continuous take i mean yeah, yeah. there were like a yeah. really, like a yeah. few films done like that they weren't that uh, interesting I but what one. if you can do it yeah. like to make it really engaging and interesting yeah yeah we were talking about the russian arc yeah no there's russian arc there was like some, some few others and also there are some also feature films that have the kind of like the the feeling of one take but it's actually not one take they yeah. have like, smart cuts yeah. and transitions yeah yeah, yeah. well uh, certainly birdman yeah the birdman uh, yeah I think the birdman a, for I sure think, yeah yeah that's a great show. no i had to do a film once where uh, we had to learn lines word for word it was written by this this gentleman who uh he came up from a, a, as a rap singer and he wrote all these scenes and uh you'd have certain lines where a guy would say uh um no no i know right He's like, no, no, I know. Mm-hmm. But he has him say it three times. Uh, no, no, I know. No, no, I know. No, no, I know. So you had to try to find ways to say it differently, right? And honestly, as we were memorizing, half of the cast dropped out because they just couldn't. He wanted it word for word. You know, that's of, not for. You know, And I didn't get it. I didn't get it. But I wanted the discipline of trying it. And it wasn't until after I learned the lines that I realized, oh, 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 I found that rhythm that I couldn't find in rehearsing because the words weren't just trippingly falling off the tongue. And that was such a great discipline, really great discipline. And it turned out to be a, a, a wonderful and strange film that we've never heard from since <laughs> called The Clinic. The Clinic. Hmm. No, there was one scene that was a half an hour four people in this one scene, a half an hour, and we would get through it and get through it and get through it. And I had the volume of the most of the dialogue, ranting and ranting. And the one character at the end had one line that he had to say, and he blew it. And the director says, <laughs> back to one. I said, can't you please just cut to him for that one? No, back to one. I wanted in one. I think he, wrote, I think he really just wanted to see if it could work. And and we finally mm-hmm. got it after about I don't know twenty takes, woo! <laughs> when you're relying on the other actors to be there for you, what are you going to do? I felt really <laughs> far sorry for the castmate. That was hard for him. Let's jump in the 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 fun experience that you had recently, Jimmy Kimmel show. How did you manage to get oh. on Jimmy Kimmel's show? <laughs> Not just get on Jimmy Kimmel's show, but you were Felt touched by, by Julia, Julia Roberts. Roberts. <laughs> yes, while George Clooney was like sitting nearby. <laughs> I know. You know, I, I, I couldn't believe it. It, it was, it was, it was wonderful. It was kind of a, a dream, kind of a dream. You know, it was, it, it was beard acting. <laughs> thank the, thank this beard. Thank this beard. I actually get more work now with this beard than ever before. But no, uh, I, I sent in my picture because they were looking for uh, not a George Clooney lookalike, but a George Clooney, somebody that had a beard just like Clooney's. Same thickness and density and you know characteristics. <laughs> and so I, I submitted and bam, they called me right away. They said, okay, fine. We're going to have five guys and you'll be the first one. And that's, that's the one that, that Julia Roberts goes to first. And so she comes in with a blindfold and George Clooney's sitting right next to me. It's like kind of surreal experience you can imagine can't you uh, so i'm sitting there and i can't say a sound say a word because i want her to think that i'm george clooney that's the whole game right yeah. and she's got this silk blindfold on so she comes over and she and you've seen it she starts really really just just as if she's trying to braille my face into memorization you know uh-huh. and She's really close to it, and she's wondered about the bridge, not sure about the bridge. And I was pretty sure she was going to choose me. And at that moment, George Clooney, who didn't quite get the game, bless his heart, <laughs> said, be sure to check the ears. So she knows now that it's, I'm not him. So she immediately starts to move, but meanwhile, he moves to another place. So he's kind of playing. She's trying to catch him. But it was just such an incredible moment, such an incredible moment. It didn't really matter whether she thought it was <laughs> him or not. Just to be, just to be touched by her so intensely, mm-hmm. you know, you could really, you could really see the actor coming out in her oh, at that mm-hmm. moment. And she wanted to get it right. It was important to her to get it right and to guess it, you know. And that shows the perfectionism of her artistry. Yeah. And, and it took a while. And George, I would say, I would say George, but George Clooney was just the coolest guy in the world to hang out with. Just real people, talks to you one on one, right? Yeah. We were kidding around about the idea: how should we enter 
when they call our when they call us in, he says, "Why don't we skip? Yeah, let's skip." <laughs> and we were fooling, but you know, we we, we kind of were conning the other guys. And when the show was all over, he gave us this, which is the <laughs> Ocean's Eleven thoroughly attentive skin ointment. You know, nice. we're not even sure what's in here, but I will tell you. <laughs> It, it smells and tastes and so smooth, and my face is like a little baby's butt. I wish you could feel it. <laughs> anyway, Lotions 11, is that clever? Awesome. Yeah. Leave it to Clooney. I saw it. I saw it in that video. It was pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. You know, one, one, little no, one little thing that I noticed about your, uh, I, I don't know how you call it, performance at the Jimmy Kimmel show, that yeah. the, when the, the movie starts, when the clip starts, when everyone enters, yeah. you, like, really move forward so you kind of like separate yourself from With the crowd purpose. so you can see you uh, you know like as an individual yeah. not a part of the group and it's like it was amazing i thought wow that's pretty cool well it, it actually i just i had to go in first and i always i always find that it's such a long distance from the stage entrance to the to the stage itself that i just took long strides and i thought those guys i thought they were right with me uh-huh. but george goes his own pace Right, and he was the second man. He kind of was cruising in, and they were cruising behind. <laughs> but yeah, I got there early and just hung out a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was fun. That was fun. It was a lot of fun. It was a, it was fun to it was fun to share with the family mm, because you mm. know when you're an actor and you start appearing on 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 TV shows, they'll see you in a commercial they'll be excited. But when they see you alongside. George Clooney and <laughs> Julia Roberts, they just shut the door. He's really there with them. Yeah, they were just <laughs> the family. They were just, they couldn't believe it. I said, hey, I couldn't believe it. It's one of those funny things, right? Yeah, that's pretty. <laughs> yeah. yeah. To, to me, especially, it's like coming from, from Russia, like, oh my God, <laughs> you're like right there. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big deal. It's yeah. a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> so that was uh, one of the fun moments in your career. And now um, let's talk a little bit about some setbacks, if you if you're comfortable. Is there a moment in your career that uh, you consider a failure? How did you manage to overcome it? Oh boy, I don't know. I'm sure I've had failures. You know, we all have failures, <clears throat> big and small. Look, there are great roles that I wanted that I didn't get. Mm-hmm. Right, and sometimes I, I I would early on in my career I beat myself up about that. Because I thought I had it. Mm-hmm. Also, sometimes, you know, you drive into the audition and you're doing it, you're doing it, and you're driving it, you're sitting in the lobby, you're doing it, you're doing it. Finally, you go in and you do it, you got that one take, you do it. And maybe it felt good, maybe it didn't feel good, you know. But here's a weird thing, and I, I would call any actor who's watching this interview on this one, mm-hmm. is that you've finished it now, okay. Now I can let it go, I can relax, I can go back to my life, I can go get in the car, play the music I want, I don't have to worry about holding in my lines or my character choice, you know. But you're driving home and you're looking in the rear of your mirror and you're doing it again. You're doing the scene again, mm-hmm. even as you're driving home after you've done it. And it's the strangest phenom, you know, that we do those things, that we, get, we hold it in for that long. And maybe we think we're projecting back that maybe they'll get this vibe or, you know, well, who knows what ethereal things are going on in our heads. But it's, uh, it's a fascinating thing. So, yeah, early on I kicked myself. But then I got to realize that, you know, f- to be really a good actor or any artist, you, you got to keep the child alive inside you. you gotta, there's, a little, there's a little kid inside there. Sometimes they're a little damaged kid, someone that didn't get enough love, and that's why they're in this business. They want the attention. That's the wrong reason to be in it. You should never be in it for that reason. Then you're going to need therapy too because it's never going to fill you up. It's never going to suddenly you win one award and you think, "Ah, now you want another one, and it never fills you up. You're addicted now at this point to um, having people fawn on you and just trying to get your love, trying to get your love. Just trying to get the love, right? And so it's 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 hard if you do something and it isn't quite what you thought it was going to be. You got to remember that it may have been your best performance. It may have been your best performance. You'll never know. Understanding that you will never know how you did, let it go, let it go, right? And move on to the next one. Move on to the next one. You can't hold it in. Right, no. because you're going to torture yourself. Why would you do that? You work so hard at it, and you didn't get it. Then you kick yourself for not getting it. You know, you're like an abusive your own your your own abusive husband. You know, <laughs> it's like it's no good. 
You got to let that go. You know, there used to be a place in Hollywood back when we gave headshots and resumes, right? You've done that, haven't you, Constantine, on the other side? Here's my headshot. Here's a resume, right? Here was a guy, very clever guy. He came up with an idea of going to all of the casting director offices and studios. And once they finished auditions, taking all of those headshots and resumes, going into this little kind of a warehouse mm -hmm. and putting them in bins as if you're in a library or a record store and actors could come in and buy them back. And which was pretty cool because if you're using color photos, that was a buck a piece, man. It was a lot of money. So you could go into this place and you could go through a bin and find your name and pull out all of the submissions you had done. I thought, oh, that's cool. And you look to make sure they're not too bent so you can use them again. But <laughs> you turn them over and that's where you see the casting director's notes about your performance. Mm -hmm. And that is chilling, chilling. Most of the time, you don't remember which role it was for, right? And you're not even sure about the signature or the catch, but they will say things like pushed too hard, too young, too old, not handsome enough. A lot of personal comments, but in, in, in terms of the choices you made in your acting, so oftentimes it would be things like, the worst thing they can say is, didn't buy it. <laughs> they sat here, you showed them your choice, Mm, yeah, don't buy it. That's tough. That's tough. That place is gone now. <laughs> Fortunately, I guess that place is gone. And we don't give headshots out anymore. So that was an era, the end of an era. <laughs> yeah, it reminded me, uh, I don't know whether in English it translated well, but uh, in Russia, the Stanislavski, uh, he is famous for this phrase, ne veru, which means I don't believe. You know, uh, he was saying it to like performers when he was in theater. Neveru. Yeah, yeah. I had that. I had that from a a coach when I was a pastor in a Playhouse College. That's where mm -hmm. I got my 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 A degree, and um, before going to UCLA. And he he would give you an improv up there. He says, "No speak, no talking. Just do the improv without you know using the crutch of dialogue." He would refer to dialogue as a crutch. And I'm in the middle of what I think is a really great moment, and. And I'm acting like I'm shivering, I'm cold, and you I don't believe you, John. I don't believe you, John. Okay, but I'm still up there. I'm still up there. I'm on a chair on top of a table above everybody else, and they're seeing everything I'm doing. So you keep trying. No, I'm not buying it, John. I don't believe you. And that makes you lose all the artifices really fast. You know, just, okay, stop this. Stop. Stop showing. Trust yourself enough to just do it. Just be. Just be. It's hard to just be, isn't it? So, John, tell us a little bit about your international experience. You've been to uh, Paris Film Academy. You uh, taught at the Hollywood Academy in Kiev and also yeah. one more. Yeah, the, uh, Paris, uh, uh, Lagos, Nigeria mm -hmm. for the Nollywood actors. Right? And um, I work as a filmmaker, as an actor, and as a teacher. And I managed to juggle all three, and I always have, because one feeds the other, you know. I always preferred learning the craft of filmmaking, acting, all those things from practitioners more than from theorists, you know? Yeah. Um, but the way our, our educational system is, it's starting to change for the better. But for the, for the longest time, say you want to be an actor and you figure you should go to college, okay? Well, you want to be an actor in film, not in theater, Unless you're in New York, maybe you will do theater, but no one would come to Hollywood to be in theater, right? No. Um, so <laughs> you go to college and you say, okay, I want to I learn film acting. He says, oh, acting, great. Go to theater arts. Says, no, no, but that's stage acting. That's theater. I want to do movies. Well, then you got to go to filmmaking. You got to become a filmmaker. No, but I want to act. So really, you almost have, have both, both degrees. Now, meanwhile, on the other side of the campus, you have the filmmaking department, and they're not calling the theater arts actors to be in their films. They ought to. One side should work with the other. Because one thing that that anybody that gets a filmmaking degree suffers from is learning how to direct actors. They don't have courses in it. They don't know how to do it. I just finished a gig that was a nightmare because it was a first-time director. Just didn't know how to work with actors. Just didn't know how to basically move them around like they were models. He should have hired models, actually. You know? <laughs> and so uh, there was no place to learn that. 
So I jumped at the opportunity to create that acting for film course at the New York Film Academy. Mm -hmm. All right. And that's where I met uh, Marina Stoda. Right. So indirectly, now I met you. <laughs> um, and there I had a chance to now lay out a course of learning all the techniques of acting for film, all the subtextual work, the power of stillness, the not blinking, the finding your film voice. You know, <clears throat> theater voice, you use your diaphragm. It's from the, you know, it's from the diaphragm. So it's a really like a brass instrument. And it's all here because I'm projecting. I have to project from that. I need that bass. And there I'm talking like this. But on film, if you try to talk like that, you're gonna, the sound man's going to strangle you. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so you learn that, okay, so if stage acting is a brass instrument, then film acting is a reed instrument. It's like a sexy saxophone, which is very close to the, the, the human voice, right? So when you're breathing and speaking, you're breathing through your chest. So you put your hand on your chest and you just go, ah, just sigh, ah, ah. Ah, you start to feel this little vibration in there. Ah, 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 okay. That's where the film actor is. Now, now I can talk here. I never have to raise my voice. I can find nuances and colors and all kinds of things to do with my voice because I'm using a film voice. Nobody teaches that anywhere. Half the people that we're teaching that we're actors never heard of it either. But when you once you showed it to them and you made them listen to their own voice and they realize how distorted it is when you're from the diaphragmatic it doesn't work right so those are things that i had to teach particularly in in nollywood because the african actors god love them bring total emotionality everything is serious and emotional and you know relief it's <laughs> always at the brink of life you know and it's great, so you don't have to give them that part of it. But now you take that, and now we got to take that and bring it down. Make it for film. Make it smaller. Put it in a small box. Sit on your hands. Don't act with your hands. You know, things like that. And they found incredible power to be able to sit there, look at a, a dot on the wall, visualize it as the person they're talking to, and speak for one minute without blinking. And a shot that starts like this and slowly, slowly moves in and becomes this, so that by the end of it, they're this close and they understand the essence of film acting. And that is so much more delicate and gentle and refined. And they really have to kind of recreate their art a little bit. The good news is the preparation for a role, the backdrop you do, everything you do in the way of creating a character, right? Mm -hmm. um, it holds for either, either format, either. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't, you have to, it doesn't change, but, the actual technique is what is the difference. And uh, there's no place to learn these things. Yeah. You learn from watching. But even when you're watching a movie, oh, God, that's interesting. What did he do? You don't know what he did or where it came from. Mm -hmm. So you can't take it because then you're just imitating. You're just mimicking. So to find those, those wonderful essential things is what really matters. So to impart that information to people in foreign countries, and hopefully it grows. Hopefully it blossoms from there. And it gives them an opportunity to, to have a film career. You know, when you look at Bollywood films, you look at Indian films, you know, they're very, very over the top, very celebratory and, you know, frothy, you know, and colorful. <laughs> and it's a, a sun splash of colors, right? And so much joy. And But it's, a, it's over the top. And we would call it over the top acting. Yeah. Same thing with Africa. Doesn't matter. In Africa, it's over the top. You got to find the technique to get you through because the technique will save you. Of course, now everybody's doing selfies. <laughs> so you need it more than ever now. But yeah. hopefully they're learning it just by doing selfies. It's good. It's a good thing for them, you know, the newer actors. But working internationally was great because we, we exchanged ideas and thoughts. And uh, basically, every country I've been to, they make movies the same as we make them. It's basically the same. They don't cut in the camera. It's wide shot medium then we go into the close-ups and that's it you know you start wide and you work your way in into the closers and actors have to learn um to be able to fit both disciplines and i think a lot of them got it and the question is uh you know will they continue and do it or will they fall back into the bad habits you know that's that's a fascinating part in taiwan and china it's the same thing it's a bit it's a bit bigger it's all a bit bigger right and more demonstrative. They're demonstrating how they feel about this. They're upset. They're demonstrating that they're upset. 
when you get rid of all that stuff and you, you know, uh, some of the actors in Taiwan, I would have to say, are stronger than the actors I've seen in China mm -hmm. because they have rid themselves of those bad habits. They become more, uh, I guess you'd have to say Americanized in their approach to film acting. There is this book uh, by Stanislavski that I was reading in Russia, My Life in Art, and it also has right. like a, you know, sequels and stuff. There, everything you need to know to avoid all of the, he literally lists all of those mistakes that you mentioned and, and, and some more. Uh, and yeah. how he was building his acting um, capabilities from pretty much zero to where he ended up. Yeah. And yes. my favorite exercise that he would describe in the book was about this act. Like there was famous actor who came to their um, to their theater at that time, and he sat on a chair on the theater stage. The exercise is to just sit in the chair. That was the assignment to just sit in the chair, right. and that's right. your act. That's right. what you need to do. And he was sitting in a chair. And everyone was just amazed by the way he sat in that chair. Uh, and yeah. you cannot watch yeah. it. You, you cannot learn it by just watching it on, on the television. You don't know yeah. what's happening in his head. That's yeah. what nobody tells you. Yeah. Yes. Well, that's what, it, what I find fascinating about the whole, you know, he never called it a method, Stanislavski. We know that. We called it a system of acting. And he also did say that even though I, I like to use emotional memory, you don't have to. You know, no. <laughs> but it became a departure between him, as you know, a departure between him and, and Chekhov, because Chekhov, as organic as he was, also believed that the show must go on. So you got to get behind that organic and give it a little kick, but not kick it to such a point that it becomes over the top. Mm -hmm. And that was the the, the balancing act. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny. Uh, we had an exchange program with uh, Moscow Art Theater. We were mm -hmm. at the New York Film Academy, so all these actors came from Russia. Any of the method act teachers had a hard time with them because they would say, no, 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 that's not what Stanislavski meant by the magic if. And you realize, well, okay, he wrote his original everything in Russian, translated it to French, then translated it to English. So by the time we got it, it had been, well, you know this, right? It's pretty distorted <laughs> by the time we got it. So it's wonderful to hear from <clears throat> trained Russian actors what he really means. Right? Yeah, because you, you read it in Russian, you know, like you read it in in the language that it was written, so you, un I guess, understand more. Because some things get lost in, trans in translation as well, I think. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, everyone tries yeah. to create their own system or whatever. But I'm, what I personally yeah. think is that all those systems is just a tool to get you to be true to give a truthful experience. Yes, yes. Uh, and if this helps you, yes. If that helps you, sure. As long as you yeah. get where you need to go. Yeah, I can't agree with you more, Constantine. Can't. Um, you know, I refer to it as uh, when 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 I when I teaching when I'm teaching uh, a bit of the history of acting and how we got to where we are now, how to become the organic acting. You know, uh, I said, okay, well, let's look at the lineage. It's Stanislavski's tree. He planted the seeds and <laughs> he grew this tree and then check off he had a branch over here he went over here and stella adler she went to the same side you know strasberg even went to the same side you know but then you got meisner over here <laughs> and you got chubbuck and you have these others who are kind of adding their own wrinkle really the wrinkle that that they all had to add is okay we're all want we all want to get organic performances our approach is different we all has different approaches and really the main thing is the exercises that we give you. The exercises, the tools, particularly the improvisational exercises, are what set us apart. You look at um, you look at um, Chekhov and you, you think about his um, psychological gesture. Mm -hmm. You know, Jack Nicholson, he would read a script and he said, this is an award-winning script, probably going to win an Oscar, but I can't find a psychological gesture for the character, so I'm not going to take this role. That's how he much he believed in Chekhov, a man who died... 30 years before, 20 years before he became an actor, you know? No. It's amazing that Chekhov has, has staying power, but it's really another branch of Stanislavski. Yeah. And finding ways to try, you know, the, the old idea, you know, one of the very first acting primers written said, if you have to portray pain, put a pebble in your shoe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, now, they never said, think about the first pet you ever had and when it died in your arms. I mean, they all, you know, they never suggested go back to a real life experience, emotional memory, as Stanislavski called it. He never talked about that. He said, no, just put a pebble in your shoe, which is interesting enough because now 
people who are considered method actors will put the pebble in the shoe and use it as a substitution point for the pain. We know we use substitution, right? And that's all, that's all acceptable. So it all comes from the same tree for my money. And whatever works for you. You know, if you say you got to cry on cue, how are you going to do it? You know, I mean, that's sometimes you will just hold in tension and that will do it. Sometimes if you're sitting and you have to have a moment of tension, you just put your arms down and lift your body up with your arms, right? <laughs> and now I'm sitting here and my arms are holding me up and, and I'm not any different. We're just chatting, right? But you can see that there's some internal tension. Yeah, you definitely have some tension. It's only a gimmick. Now I lose my hands and the tension is gone. Silly little tool, but it works. So we keep inventing our own tools, don't we? Yeah, for sure. So, John, how do you go from, oh, I want to act in a movie or a TV show to actually being cast in a show like Mom, Don't Do That on Netflix? Well, listen, you know, I got Mom uh, for two reasons. One, because I had to do a self-audition mm -hmm. across the waters because they were auditioning from Taiwan, right, from Taipei, and I'm here in Los Angeles. That's one of the reasons I got it. The other reason I got it is because of COVID. They were going to go to... Uh, to Australia to find an Australian actor to play the character, my character, yeah. right? Robert. And, uh, but they had to have 14 days of quarantine, hotel quarantine. They couldn't do that. <laughs> so I said, okay, we'll, we'll go back. We'll get somebody from Los Angeles. So they got me. So thank you, COVID. <laughs> that, doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't sound right, does it? <laughs> Commercial for COVID. That's Thanks, crazy. COVID. You're never going to see, you never see that. But uh, <laughs> yeah. But it turned out to be a life changing, a life changing experience, and I love it. And I just got a call from uh, the production company that my name is being submitted for uh, the uh, the Golden Bell Award, which is their Oscar. Mm. for a mm -hmm. best best supporting actor and the three ladies are being submitted for best actress and uh best supporting actress so that was that's that's in great company great in company so we'll see that's pretty cool and it's like everyone can go and watch it now go on netflix just type mom don't yeah. do that and check it out yeah. i think you appear yeah. in the episode number seven eight nine and, and something else right well yeah seven eight nine ten it, it's the last three eight nine ten um, was it 11 episodes? I think we had 11 episodes uh, where, where we really get together and we, mm -hmm. that's where we go on the road trip together and we fall in love and then we get married and all those things happen. And uh, that was such a joy. You know, I got to see the whole island. We went all around the island shooting in that van. And nice. uh, it was, you know, I, I really try to do as much international work as I can. I love the, the Taiwanese directors, mm -hmm. really love them. Oh, they were just they were they were just wonderful because they could communicate one on one with you, you know. And uh, I had this one great scene toward the end of the the last show where I'm sitting down at um, now my new family's, you know, at a table um, outside in the marketplace, the night market, right? And I'm setting another place, right? Taking some of my food, moving the cups, so setting another place over there, right? And the director says. John, it's a ritual. That's all he had to say. It's a ritual. And the ritual is, I'm honoring the deceased husband and father of the girls and inviting him to have dinner with us. And so once I know what it's for, now I'm carefully placing and gently putting food and gently pouring just the exact same amount of beer in the glass as ours and putting it there and lifting up and say, in this way, the family is always together. And couldn't say it without crying. Can't even say it now <laughs> without getting emotional, you know, because it's such a beautiful, a beautiful gesture, right? The the symbolism uh, and purity of of the Taiwanese uh, film community and the Taiwanese people is just uh, I'll tell you I could live there I could live there easily hmm. it's a, just a wonderful place they're so innocent there's this beautiful hmm. naivete and innocence and you know there's no cynicism or sarcasm in their language like if I say um, oh, thanks you're a big help. We know that I don't mean it, right? But they will look at it and says, oh, thank you. You're a big help. Say, no, no, you don't really mean it. Well, then why do I say it? Because, oh, shit. Uh, 
It's a terrible, nasty American habit. Don't do it. Mom, don't do that. <laughs> Your mom, don't do that. Yeah. 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 Feature films versus TV shows. Yeah. Which one do you think is better as a job, as an actor? Well, it, I, it's changed over the years. I never wanted, you know, uh, uh, from the beginning, I always wanted to do film. Mm-hmm. You know, movies, movies, mm-hmm. because I, I like I like watching on the big screen. Mm-hmm. I don't like watching on the small screen, right? And all my all the stars that I grew up uh, watching were the big screen actors, right? And so, no, I wanted that. Um, but you know, the more I work and the longer I've been at it, you come to the point where you realize everybody wants a, a, a an episodic now because it's long range employment. You don't have to be hunting around for jobs. I do. I'm blessed to be working. I, I work all the time. But you know, every time you finish a job, it's find another job. I mean, imagine, imagine, imagine going on a hundred job interviews a year, three hundred job interviews a year. That's what it is. Your whole life is job interviews. That's part of the job, and, and nobody pays you for that. Yeah. <laughs> You could go back again and again on call because between you and him, you and him, and then he gets it. It's okay. Do I get anything? Do I get a baseball cap? Do I get nothing? <laughs> nothing. Nothing. You get nothing. <laughs> well, maybe a water bottle from the audition. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, or, or something like that. Give me or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about this poster that is behind you. Where is she now? Oh, yeah. Where is she now? Yeah. Uh, well, that, that's, that's my baby right there. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your experience. I came to a point of realizing as I, I was, I had been teaching at the New York Film Academy and got that whole program up. And that was about 13 years that I was with them. And, but I could always take time off and go do a film, take off and go do a film, which mm-hmm. is great. I could take a break for a few months and work. So I was doing both, which I really liked. Um, but I got to a point where I said, you know, I really want to, I really want to go out and make my own films and, 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 you know, concentrate more on acting and, and bring that to teaching you have to keep bringing more to teaching and of course since covid everything's changed so much anyway right so i thought what i want to do is i want to go around the world and visit my students because i have 3000 students throughout the world and i want to just visit them and, and and make a documentary about them mm-hmm. right but i realized that wasn't a good idea because you know, imagine you're, you come to an acting school and you're getting a lot of pressure. I had a couple of uh, my students from uh, Scandinavia, you know, from Sweden and Norway and Finland, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they went back home and they, have the, they got a bachelor's degree and they go back home, but there's no acting. There's no film there. Maybe there's theater. Maybe there's commercials, but they, don't, they really don't have a career there. So the vast majority of my students have gone home and they're not working. And so I realized, okay, we have to, we have to change this from a documentary into something else. And so what we decided to do is create the scenario based on a true story, which is one of my students disappearing the night before her graduation, just disappeared, up and disappeared. You know, we didn't think that much about it because a lot of kids are flaky when they're in the arts. People in the arts are a little flaky, you know, artsy flag. And so we figured it was maybe something personal. We don't know what, it, but she disappeared, Marita. And then as I'm doing the interviews in London, I'm going to, People say, well, gee, have you talked to your other students? Uh, who else are you be saying? Well, I, I contacted about 100 students. I heard from all of them except Marita. Oh, Marita. Well, you know, she does. And th- then they tell me a Marita story. And I, I go into, you know, I go from London to Stockholm, and the people there told me Marita stories. And I said, I, I'm going to go to Norway. I'm going to find out what happened to her. And so I went to Norway, and of course, she's not there. Her father's passed away. There's nobody at the house. Went to his grave site. No sign of any family plot or anything. Nobody knows. She's just disappeared. But her friend got a postcard from her. And the postcard was from Salzburg. So I decide, I'm going to see if I can find her in Salzburg. And I drag along some of my students. So it goes from being an interview with students, documentary, to a documentary. (laughs) <laughs> and so we decided to keep our cameras open and record everything as we go along to find out what would happen. And we found out we went from Salzburg to Vienna to Stuttgart and Amsterdam, you know, and it always ends in Amsterdam. And we fought and we went to the, uh, the, into Stuttgart for the uh, Volksfest, right? The Oktoberfest, 125,000 drunken Germans. And we were having chase scenes here. So we got all this great production value because it was all handheld camera. 
So we could use it with ambient lighting and just bounce boards, and we could go anywhere we wanted. And the the film company, the uh, the uh, film permit offices, would interview us and say, "Well, what are you using?" I'm well, using this uh, HMC 150 camera. He says, "Well, where where's all the lights and where's the crew? It's just us." My students, they've taken the film classes, so they know how to bounce light. And so we all crewed one another and uh, just had a great time. Went to seven countries. And then we decided, okay, let's take it to the film festival circuit. Went to the, the London International Film Fest. We won Best Film and Best Director. And we went to Berlin, won Best Director and Best Editing. We just <laughs> kept winning awards. And we said, okay, we got something. And so now it's a question of marketing how to market it. Not every film can be done this way, you know. But the thing that occurred to me, even when we were working on the back lots, uh, Universal in classes, our production workshops were on Thursdays and Saturdays, and we go on all the great Universal Studio back lots. So you'd be doing a film on Wisteria Lane, where the Desperate Housewives were, or where the Scorpion King, or, oh, there's the Watchtower for the uh, Back to the Future, and all these famous places. And Austin Powers was shot there. So the kids had a great time shooting there, and we realized we should start doing original stuff. And the great thing about the back lot is you don't have time for lighting. So maybe you have 10, 12 students in your class, and you're going to do five or six scenes. And you're going to use whatever backdrop there is, right? And you come to realize, you know, when you're on a real movie set and you're an actor, if it's a 12-hour day, you probably only spend a half an hour in front of that camera. Because all the rest of the time, they're lighting. <laughs> they're lighting. And then the craft people have to come in and set up that as well. But it's lighting. And you realize, have you ever heard an audience member, anybody that isn't in the business say, oh, I saw that movie. I love the lighting. They never ask. They never talk about the lighting, you know. And well, I realize. I, I want to add to that, sorry, uh, that the, the best lighting is when you don't notice it. <laughs> Absolutely. Just like the best acting. <laughs> yeah well the composers will say that about the music if, you, if you're noticing the music then the music was overshadowing can't really say that with jaws but that, you know, it's, it's an <laughs> argument but i thought okay okay so maybe this new way of doing things is a, is a way to go because we could get that camera we could go out we could shoot a scene in real time without cutting because i was so used to using this camera that i could move it around and do a little ballet with it without drawing attention to it Like, it always bothers me if you have three people standing there, but the camera's moving. Mm -hmm. They're not moving. How can you move, right? The, 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 re the reality becomes distorted, <laughs> you know? And so we learned a lot about, about, you know, new rules of cinema, new rules of cinema. And now we could shoot with any backdrop we want and have all these scenes, you know, have a great deal more weight, right, and drama to them. You know, we went into St. Stephen's Cathedral, In, in, in Vienna, we went to the Great Wheel, also in Vienna. We were able to shoot in the, the uh, red light district of Amsterdam. You're not supposed to shoot in the red light district of Amsterdam, but this is one little cam camera here, no lights or anything. Shooting our way. <laughs> it was a great deal of fun. Great deal of fun. Yeah, where people can find the movie? They can't see it. They can't see it yet because mm -hmm. uh, we haven't taken it. We haven't taken it to market. What we did was we raised some more money and we spinned it off into a TV series. Mm -hmm. Because where is she now? Ends in a crime. It ends in, in in a crime, and we all got back home and you know kind of we witnessed it, but we didn't have anything to do with it. So we we figure our lives will be normal. We're going to go home, but then you know a year later, that's when the TV series begins. Some of us are having nightmares. Some of us are, you know, experiencing hair. All these psychological problems because we never dealt with what we had witnessed. So we realized, okay, we got to go back and somehow figure out, you know, what happened. Mm -hmm. And in going back, in going back, we find out it was not what we thought it was. And of course, you know, and the chase continues. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we shot. We shot on the Bahamas for a week, and we got it got stuck in Hurricane Hermione, got us, mm -hmm. and we so we had some hurricane shots, and we shot in um, in Mumbai, India, and in Berlin, and uh, in Dresden, Germany, and in Prague, and just just had a great time. Yeah, it sounds like a James Bond movie. <laughs> it is. It is like that. It is only only it's a it's more like a James Bond home movie. Yeah. <laughs> the one question people would say at the film festivals would be, was that scripted? Mm. I said, yes. They mm -hmm. couldn't tell. They couldn't tell that it was scripted. 
<laughs> because it was so organic, you know. Anyway, there's a lot to be liked about it, and uh, I'm really anxious to take it to the next step. Now, you asked, how can we see it? Look, when we were doing these film festivals, you see the same filmmakers there, right? They go from fest to fest to fest to you. You get to know them. And so we'd win at this fest, and they'd win at the next fest. So there was this kind of, you know, camaraderie, right? Mm -hmm. Fellow soldiers, you know. Every one of them got distribution for their films, right? Amazon, Hulu, and that stuff. But none of them, not one of them got upfront money. Mm -hmm. So they gave their firstborn child away, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And three years go by, five years go by, no money comes in. So their backers have given up on making another film with them and they're stuck. So everybody's a onesie filmmaker, one film, because distributors will take your money, but they won't give you money up front. They take your movie, but they won't give you money up front, which is pretty sad. Uh, Amazon would have given us a deal, but Amazon, they're going to, Put your film up there for $14 and all you get is a buck 40. You get 10%. They get 90%. And you say, how can we ever make money? And they say, well, you got to be a content generator. You got to, you know, do others. No, no, you don't. Because I could have a million people and trust me, they're not going to pay 14 bucks to see me in a movie, <laughs> you know? So it's that whole, that whole, you know, UGC thing is really just trying to get actors to turn into salespeople. And that's what they become, <laughs> hawking somebody's product in their living room, you know. And so it's, no, it's not for me. It's not for me. Uh, I got to get upfront money. Or I got to get a distribution deal whereby they say, okay, we'll fund your second season. Show me the money. Yeah. Abelula. Abelula. No, we want to keep working. We want to keep making, making more of the, the, the episodes. But we're not going to do it without uh, uh, a streamer or a distributor that's going to go in with us on it, you know. Yeah. With with mom, don't do that. You know they that was privately funded, but Netflix put in so much money in uh, marketing community. They they had entire buildings covered with posters, you know, mm -hmm. and they really, really, really went to went to town and uh, building awareness to the show. And that's what's great about their their work. Let me challenge your creativity a little bit. This is the question that I ask uh, my guests uh, towards the end mm -hmm. of the interview. So here yeah. it goes. If you were an extraterrestrial from a perfect world where everything is nicely organized and in harmony, and then you arrive to our world with all of mm -hmm. its issues and, and things going on, what would be the, mm -hmm. one, the one thing that you would fix as an extraterrestrial? Well, right now, particularly under, under, under the, under the uh, climate we're in, I would from an art, again, still coming from the artist's standpoint, right? I'm, I'm more on the emotional side. I'm more the right brain than the left brain, linear. I would wish that everyone would live a life as a quest for truth, that you would be more curious about the world around you, that if you say that history doesn't matter, yes, it does, because you're reliving it. And if you don't want to keep reliving mistakes of the past, learn from them. You know, so many millennials feel that eh, whatever happened before 1990 doesn't matter to us. Yeah, it should. It does. Because everything is cyclical. What happened with Hitler is happening in other countries and could be happening here. Uh, it's, it, if everyone could be on a quest for honesty, then the con men wouldn't take over. Yeah. And the greed-driven people wouldn't take over. And that's, that's, that's the main thing. That's the main thing because uh, we got a lot of problems in our country, but there are a lot of problems in a lot of countries. But when you have a dishonesty and a divide because you believe this and I believe that because we're getting it from different sources and there are people down there pushing our hot buttons, Rupert Murdoch's of the world, you know, that don't care about anything but just mess with us because it's fun to watch. The sadistic little pleasure game they have because I got mine to hell with you. You go get yours. People like that are the enemy. A thinking, moral person is what we need at the top. Uh, compassionate people, people who care about one another. And forget about division, you know, racism, you know, forget about that. That's, I don't know how I could ever change that. The day the earth stood still, if I could come out and give the, <laughs> you know, the robot, come and give you the message from us. You know, I'm not going to come out, uh, okay, uh, folks, you are all messed up. You got to get your shit together, and I'm going to go away in 50 years. We'll be back. But you better have changed by then, you know. And meanwhile, blow up the place and go. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Um, 
it's hard for me to imagine ever being a, an, an extraterrestrial. <laughs> maybe we all are. <laughs> maybe, maybe that probably wasn't a very good answer. <laughs> We're probably an extraterrestrial for for someone else. You know, I think the best place to kind of like see how it could be is to watch the Star Trek uh, TV series, like especially the old ones, to see how yeah, the world yeah. can work. No, particularly the old ones, because so many of the things they talked about with the old ones have come to pass. Mm, exactly, yeah. 50 years later, mm -hmm, 60 mm -hmm. years later. Yeah, it's pretty yeah, amazing. For sure. You, do you think that's why uh, movies like, like Star Wars are so popular and superhero movies are so popular? It's not just escapism. It's It, it shows a, a world that is better. Or better ways of living, yeah. Not sure about Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a war, literally. <laughs> but yeah, Star, it is. Star Trek, I like more in, in that essence because it really shows how you know different societies can live in, yeah. in harmony. True. So, yeah, it was a very moralistic show. Mm -hmm. Well, it, 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 it was also at a time where, you know, like Rod Serling, when he created Twilight Zone, it was during the, the, the Red Scare. You know, the famous, you know, the, the Cold War era. And he says, okay, yeah. if we want to show injustice and prejudice and things like that, we got it has to be on some planet someplace else and not here. Yeah. And that's how they were able to get away with it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think that's in general. That's how, that's why people were, uh, create science fiction um, and, and fantasy yeah. to kind of like show our modern problems in, in a different environment so yeah. we can kind of like look yeah. at it from a side and see whether we're doing the right thing yeah what was your answer to that question well if i was uh, an extraterrestrial and i come to our planet and i would focus on one thing i think i would definitely <laughs> i would definitely cancel social media <laughs> <laughs> I would just like turn off Amen. the social media. Amen. It's it's more like drastic approach. No, but you're right. Remember, it was originally referred to as the information superhighway. Mm -hmm. That's what Bill Clinton called it, right? I thought, mm -hmm. oh, ooh, we need that. And eh, eh, eh. it's the opinion superhighway. <laughs> Any opinion you want, you don't even have to bother to prove it. Nobody's going to bother to look it up. Yeah, <laughs> it's made people lazier among so many other things. It's terrible what's happened to it. And for 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 auditioning, uh -huh. no way to go, no way to go. We want to go back to our uh, audition studios again. We want to meet the casting director, see him face to face. We want them to provide the reader. We want them to provide the camera. We want them to provide the lighting. Mm -hmm. But now we do it all. We we even have to be the editor and the and the background. Yeah, yes. Ah! It's wrong, 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 wrong. I don't know if it's going to change, though. I don't know if it's going to go back. The unions have to get behind it. No. The unions have to say, no, you can't. You can't give actors 14 pages to audition or do. The worst are the pre-screens. Pre-screens. You know, I, I produced a film a few years back called uh, Get Married to Die. And Michael Feinstein, who is uh, uh, from Russia, also from Moscow, uh, the director, great guy. Well, I'm from um, St. Petersburg. <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. The other big town. And we made this film and uh, put it out for distributors and never got a dime. Haven't seen any money at all from it, anything at all. It's just been kind of languishing because of the way they do business now, these guys. And uh, it's interesting because uh, I had hoped that we'd come to Russia with it and I'd have a chance to work with the folks at the Moscow Art Theater. And now with the Ukraine war and all that, who knows? Who knows if, if I'll ever go back, you know? It's all changed. Yeah, It's all changed. So now we arrived at the final question that I end the episode, every episode, and oh. uh, I call it obsession of the week. It could be oh. anything. It could be a favorite movie that you're obsessed with this, this week or, mm. uh, or, or a sandwich from a particular store that you love. For example, for me, my obsession mm. of this week is a miso soup yeah. uh, with noodles by any chance. I yeah. get it from, uh, from Whole Foods. It's just so good. <laughs> I don't know why it yeah. makes me feel good. Yeah. Uh, particularly this week. <laughs> so what is your obsession? What is something that you're really obsessed with this week? One of the things I'm obsessed with is I have a library of all the films that we did back when I was at New York Film Academy. Just like, mm, imagine imagine DVDs stacked together wow. in a shelf, two shelves this big, right? And it goes back 20, 20 some years. So I really need to go through that because I have a number of of students that want to see it. And I want to see it again, see how much of it holds up. Some of the actors that I worked with that became movie stars 
uh, are in there, and I want to be able to look at their early works and send them off to them. A lot of my students contact me and say, John Rand, did you have our scene anymore that we did? Oh, you mean the one we did on the back lot in 2004? Well, let me look and see if I can find it. So I owe it to them to go through my library <laughs> and try and organize it a bit more. So that's kind of my ongoing struggle. It's probably more than just this week. It's going to take a long time to do that. How people can find you um, if they want to connect with you? Well, if they look at my name, John Henry Richardson, they can see me on Facebook, on Instagram. And if you go to IMDB, you can see a list of all my films, The Good, Bad, and The Ugly. And uh, there are a lot of clips there. If they go on Instagram, they can see many clips from my films and excerpts from uh, Mom, Don't Do That, and also from Where Are We Now and Where Is She Now, the TV series. We laid a couple of uh, preview clips in there. So that's a good place to go. They can always friend request me. I don't do the whole followers thing. I don't believe in the followers. I just go for friends. Um, so that's the best place, I think. Perfect. And I do I do answer messages if people people ask me questions that they want and want to know anything I'm I'll get back to them just be be patient I'll get there as quick as I can. Thank you so much, John. Thank you for coming today. My pleasure, Constantine. Next time I'm going to interview you, ask you about your acting, and directing, <laughs> and photography career, and now your hosting career and all that. Sure. What's Let's your favorite of all those things? Do you have a preference? Directing. Thank you for listening to Rumike Talks podcast. You can find the show notes at rumike.com. I'm your host, Konstantin Staradetsky. My producing partner, Rumena Dinevska. See ya.